it's always a trade-off with personal touch versus technology. And when you're dealing with people's money, it's a very personal thing. Um, so that personal touch, I don't think is going anywhere from the business uh, for centuries to come. You still need human to human relationships and personal touch on these things to make the process seamless, trustworthy, when things go wrong to be able to handle the situation. So I think there's a huge amount of trust that goes into the business. Let's get ready to scale. joining me for yet another episode of Ready to Scale. I am Jeanette Now Friedrich, Director of Investor Relations with Blue Lake Capital. Joining me today is Andrew Krebar. Andrew has a really interesting background, um, very eclectic and evolving in many interesting ways. We're going to get into that today. He is currently the CEO and co-founder of GP Flow, which essentially is one of the latest investor portal softwares to hit the market that I've at least learned about uh, prior, oh, not prior, in addition to that, actually, he's also the co-founder and CEO of Honeybricks, which is a technology platform that connects investors with multifamily investment opportunities. And we're going to have some interesting discussion about that and how that is working in today's economy. Um, it, given the rest of his background, it's really interesting. He was part of a company originally at a company called Credible. And they built a marketplace for mortgages, student loan refi, and personal loans that was ultimately acquired by the Fox Corporation in 2019. So accolades to you there. Very cool. He started his career originally in investment banking in Sydney, Australia. Andrew has a bachelor's in finance and accounting from the University of Technology in Sydney, but he's joining us today from good old New York. So Without further ado, Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Very happy to be here. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so I got to ask the most obvious question first, which is, first of all, how did you even get into real estate investing? So my first foray into real estate came in probably 2012 when we bought our, bought our first apartment. But growing up in a family with a father as an architect, real estate and buildings was always the topic of discussion. And there's probably a period of probably seven or eight years when I was like five to 13, where my dad would take him take me around these big red land crews at different job sites and show me buildings and stuff he was working on. And I was very impressionable at that age, but I always knew that was my path. I wanted to end up in, in this industry. But he taught me two really important lessons which stuck with me and I still teach people today, which is one, the beauty of real estate in its compounding vehicle for building uh, personal wealth and people's wealth. And secondly, how it's the number one driver of people's quality of life. So those two lessons really stuck with me. And then we bought our first apartment in 2012, my, my girlfriend at the time, now wife. Um, and then since then, we've been investing in real estate and syndications for the last 10 years. And then getting actually, as far as a professional sense, building technology company in real estate started in, in 2022. Nice. Okay. Well, I can kind of uh, deduce how you took your background in technology, um, you know, from some of your earlier positions and started to get into, you know, I guess we'll call it the real estate technology space, um, you know. So now, did you launch both companies at the same time or which one came first? No, as we launched Honeybricks at the time, but our vision was always building software. And um, software is, you know, recurring, repeatable, long-term relationships those sorts of things. But we knew the fastest path to value creation and testing this stuff out was doing it ourselves. Um, so that's why we launched Honeybricks 
which as I mentioned, hindsight's 2020, at the time interest rates were, were zero and it quickly went to, to 5% of the last 18 months. And over the course of that time, it was an incredible learning experience. We did a number of great deals with great sponsors across the US and we're still servicing those deals. It was a fund of funds model. So we basically pooled investor capital um, and leveraged the experience track record, everything of the lead sponsor, and then put those investors into that deal. And thankfully, you know, all going well, no capital calls or anything like that. Um, but over the last yeah, 18 or so months, as we incubated that technology, building out the behind the scenes of Honeybricks, we realized there's actually a lot more impact we can have by making this software more accessible and giving it to GPs and fund managers and sponsors to do this themselves. And that's where the iteration came. We launched GP Flow as a actually a publicly available software about three or four months ago in June, July, 2023. Mm -hmm. um, today, we're luckily working with 25 or so customers predominantly fund of funds, but also a handful of GPs. And yeah, it's an incredible journey, but this is going to be a multi-year, multi-decade adventure on. So very happy to be part of it. But we started with Honeybricks and then went into GP Flow, which is our main business, main business now. Okay. Well, that definitely makes sense to me, especially if you're building it essentially for yourself at first, then it's like, well, hey, we're starting to build this. We can make it even better. And we can you know, also share it with others in the industry that can use it. Makes perfect sense to me. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of opportunity to be had. Now, I have to say, you know, before we pushed record in all transparency to our listeners today, I said, oh, man, are you sure you want to talk about investor portals? Because I have some strong opinions about these things. So yeah. you were a brave man, Andrew, and we're going to get into it. So um, sure. coming from a sponsor standpoint and also coming to you from the perspective of both being a multifamily investor myself. So I, I have to use the software as an investor. I have mm -hmm. to use the software as a general partner, right? Because Blue Lake mm -hmm. is, is always a GP in our deals. Um, and then also coming to you as director of investor relations, where I get feedback from all of our investors on a pretty consistent basis about how they are feeling about the technology. Yeah, it's it's a very mixed bag out there. And I think the consensus kind of across the industry and also from investors standpoints is that there seems to be a lot of um, a lot of quirks, a lot of kinks, a lot of growth and development left in this space that really doesn't have the technology kind of to where people are spoiled. We're used to everything working super, super good and pretty much on most everything, you know, and, and when you're trying to evolve in a space like this, this really is the first time that we're starting to see these types of softwares, you know, come online, I would say in the last few years, right? Last four or five years, maybe. Um, so to give people kind of some insight into the behind the scenes issues, so one of the very interesting things about investor portals and what really was a big disconnect for a long time in bringing the technology to where it is now is for a long time, there was no way to connect these type of custom portals into banking. So mm -hmm. if you want to invest in something on the portal, or if you wanted to get paid through the portal or send your distributions through the portal for many years, that wasn't even an option and yeah. nobody could do it. Right. So Andrew, do you want to kind of share a little bit about how that particular problem was really what was kind of holding the industry back initially, or at least that's my understanding of what was initially really holding the technology back from kind of what we would expect it to be. Yeah. I'd say that there's probably lots of things that are culminating and holding the industry back. 
but if we look over a long enough time frame, you know, 20 years from now, it'd be very rare for a GP or a fund manager not using an investor portal. I still think early in that adoption curve, we still meet many in the industry that are getting by just fine with spreadsheets and Dropbox, um, which is fantastic. Um, but I think as more of this younger generation comes online, there's more newly accredited investors that are more used to you know, iPhone apps and that's for technology experience. That's what we're seeing more, more GPs and fund managers invest in this stuff. As far as what's holding the industry back, one is connectivity. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, we're talking about ACH contributions and distributions and moving money around, which you know, some investor portals don't have. Um, GP Flow has that for contributions and distributions. Uh, but yeah, that stuff didn't exist 10 years ago. You sort of have to wait for vendors to come online and build the infrastructure, which other investor portals and GP Flow can connect into to power that, that stuff. Because building, you know, a banking integration, today you can use Plaid. You couldn't do that 10 years ago. Or, you know, for ACH fulfillment, today you can use Dwala. Couldn't do that 10 years ago. So there's a lot of tooling and infrastructure that comes online that allows different companies to build that full investor experience. And there's a bunch of them, even like investor accreditation. There's a number of great platforms out there that do this stuff seamlessly. There's KYC. Um, all this stuff, like bundling together, is a really big opportunity. So I think that's why you're seeing technology, I guess, evolve exponentially, where you can put this stuff together. And then for you as the GP or the fund manager, you don't care how it all works. As long as we can go from A to B and investors have a great experience, uh, that's what's key. So definitely new technologies come online, but I'd say there's other things holding the industry back as well. Yeah, for sure. Now, um, you know, I have to say that one of the things that that I, from the GP side of the house, did not like uh, initially and was surprised about was I felt like I lost the ability to serve our investors at the standard of which I could do on my own. So basically mm -hmm. more people became involved in the process before it was the investors directly working with me, me working directly with the investors. And maybe the only third party I was really using was DocuSign, you know, mm -hmm. while it was a lot more work on my part and it did make it slower for me to be able to respond to investors that were wanting to get into a deal. Cause I can only, you know, email so many DocuSigns a day. And if everybody's waiting for me to send them a DocuSign, then they're all having to wait, you know, kind of at the speed that I can move at. The portal, you know, presented a great opportunity, a great solution to be able to automate and free up that part of the investment process so investors could actually get in there and invest and execute the investments at their at their discretion, at their luxury, right, at their convenience. Exactly. Um, so that was one thing I liked about it. But the thing that I didn't like about it is that because more people became involved in the process, whether it's my portal provider or third party, pro, uh, third party, um, you know, partners, uh, you know, all of a sudden there's more people that have control over other areas that I don't. So if mm -hmm. I wanted to just fix something real quick, I couldn't just jump into the portal and fix it real quick because I can't change things on the back end in the portal, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so that was one of the challenges that I have faced that has been a little bit frustrating for me. Mm -hmm. I just feel like investors aren't able to be served as quickly when there is an issue that needs to be resolved because you have to get more people involved in it. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm curious, what are you doing with GP Flow to avoid essentially taking away some of the control from GPs? and the way that they can serve their investors and still being able to offer their investors an expedited and, you know, very responsive, um, you know, a troubleshooting 
approach, if you will. For sure. I'll, I'll think about the bigger question, which is like, and then I'll come back to this, which is it's always a trade-off with personal touch versus technology. And when you're dealing with people's money, it's a very personal thing. Um, so that personal touch, I don't think is going anywhere from the business uh, for centuries to come. You still need human to human relationships and personal touch on these things to make the process seamless, trustworthy, when things go wrong to be able to handle the situation. So I think there's a huge amount of trust that goes into the business. And hopefully that's augmented, not inhibited by technology. So, you know, hopefully being able to scale that, as you said, being able to send out 50 DocuSigns to your investors in a single click. Yes, it's not as personal, but it's like way more efficient. So I think it's always a balance of like personal touch versus technology. As as far as that specific item of um, jumping in and fixing things, I think that's a question about usability, which is how do you make it like usable, seamless, technology you're proud of, technology you can pilot yourself. One thing we've seen, and perhaps you've seen this even jumping into your investor relations role, being able to sort of pilot the software is really important. And then I know there's some other providers in market, more legacy providers, which if you need to change something, you need to update a metric, you need to update a document, whatever, it's like call support or email support, and they need to jump in and like fix it for you and those sorts of things, which is definitely not the experience that most technology provides these days. It's more, you know, click edit, change it, save, um, you're good to go. So I think it's really two things, which are like, yes, it's a balance of technology and personal touch, but also like usability needs to get there where you feel empowered, not inhibited by technology. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good answer. And that's definitely one of my frustrations and concerns, um, you know, when it comes to, to the technology is I don't like feeling compromised on being in control of yeah. my investors or service and sure. have that, you know, kind of taken from me. Um, mm-hmm. Interesting. So that that's definitely one aspect. Um, now, the, the flip side of that, though, is that, you know, I know that a lot of investors, I agree with you, especially the younger generation coming online, you know, not having a, a, a portal is considered, you know, insane. Like, are you kidding me? I can't, you know, I can't see my metrics. I can't see the returns on my investments. I can't get data yeah. when I want it. I can't, you know, people don't like that either. They, investors do not want to be reliant on, oh, I need to make sure that I send Jeanette an email to get this thing that I want to get, you know, because I can't get to it myself or didn't, you know, save it in my own files, you know, three years ago, right? So investors like the convenience of being able to get into a portal and access, you know, whatever they want to be able to access. Now, I do think though, that based upon feedback that I've gotten from some of my investors, um, I think that sometimes, again, it comes down to the the usability, right? It's mm-hmm. not super user-friendly. Sometimes it's an overwhelming amount of information. Sometimes there's it's hard you know, to process a, a yet another new piece of technology in their lives, especially for the older investors or more seasoned investors that are you know, maybe not as familiar and adept at using technology, right? So how well, do you try to balance, you know, servicing a really, you know, very, I would call it tech heavy generation combined with a not as tech heavy generation that are all, you know, active part of, of investments most days now. Yeah, it's always a balance and definitely, I'm sure you'd agree with me, the accredited audience, which is predominantly who, you know, Reg D offerings target a majority of capital raised in these private investments in the, in the US, that skews towards the older demographic you know, that might not be familiar, they're happy to Happy to do things the old way, you know, in, in air quotes. Um, but there's a new generation, as you said, that um, you know, grew up on, on Robin Hood 
and used to like those sorts of experiences. And it's always a blend. And even when we onboard new customers, um, there's some of their investor base when we onboard them will be all over it, um, you know, getting the most out of it. And some will be like, eh, it's too hard. You know, I'm in my last decade of active investing. I'm not going to pay too much attention to this stuff. What we've found and what we've learned from customers is make it as easy as possible because both of those groups appreciate that and try and weave it into their existing day-to-day. So something we've got great feedback on. It's just like a monthly portfolio update. Send them an email. Hey, here's what's going on in your portfolio. Here's recent updates, distributions. Um, reach out if you have any questions. And even automating something like that as a touch point for GPs and fund managers to their investor base just keeps up those, those touch points. There's a guy called Jeffrey Lamp that said, you know, you need seven touch points to build a brand. So having those like automated, simple touch points, letting them know they're being taken care of goes a long way. Ready to Scale is brought to you by Blue Lake Capital, where we hunt down the best multifamily investment opportunities that we can find and invite investors to join in with us. We target Class B value-add multifamily properties across the Sunbelt. Our CEO, Ellie Perlman, invests a substantial amount of capital into every deal. This means our interests are aligned with yours. If you're an accredited investor looking to expand your portfolio and diversify sponsors, be sure to visit us at bluelake-capital.com. Blue Lake Capital, be bold, be extraordinary, and keep moving forward. Yeah, yep. I mean, that's definitely a good answer. I'm curious to know, uh, given your experience in actually building this out, what did you find to be some of the biggest challenges along the way? And, you know, where are the gaps in either the innovation, the technology, or the adoption of, you know, bringing about innovative new change into an industry that is very much deeply old-fashioned, right? Yeah. I'd probably say the biggest um Biggest hurdle is probably just around navigating the complexity of private market investments because every sponsor GP fund manager does stuff different things. Um, something we've, we've been working on last month was around you know, waterfall distributions. And, you know, is capital need to be fully returned to an LP before it goes to the split? Does it need to be this hurdle, that hurdle, right? The second hurdle, stuff like that. Um, thankfully, there's tools and technology that can make you make it easier to build that stuff these days. For example, you can use you know, chat GPT to write a lot of the code. So you can sort of get it out into the production or the wild, into customers and testing it sooner than later. But a lot of this stuff, you know, has existed in operating agreements for, you know, hundreds of years and being like changed and tweaked and edited every different way for different GPs and sponsors. So trying to get that into a consistent technology software that solves all of those um, use cases and edge cases has definitely been a fun challenge. Um, and I'd probably say the second one is really around just the full journey of an investor lifecycle. But the analogy we used internally was having this train track where we'd have, you know, how do we create a deal in a market investment offering, onboard investors, do KYC, sign docs, get them accredited, um, get them funded, issue shares, send them emails, manage the cap tables. So this full investor lifecycle, it's not as simple as, you know, build this small little widget for an investor. You really had to take a full holistic view of, how do we give them the best experience along that train track um, all the way through? Um, so they're probably the two biggest learnings, which is one, complexity in, in operating agreements. And then secondly, just making sure you really can capture that full investor lifecycle. Yeah, very true. And I'm glad that you touched on that because that's yet another one of my issues 
with investor portals is we have a very complex waterfall. We have some pretty yeah. complex structures and we uh, still, you know, in full disclosure, have not been able to find a way to get that completely automated. Mm -hmm. So even though we have an investor portal, we're still using good old fashioned Excel spreadsheets and having to basically just input the data in to make sure that the distributions go out accurately because of those limitations. Um, you know, and I think I can understand and appreciate it from your perspective that it's got to be really hard to create one tool that can handle the multiple ways people can structure a deal and, you know, change this, change that, uh, you know, um, mm -hmm. but I, I think I, I can appreciate it from your standpoint, but I think it's also frustrating from the sponsor standpoint and also for investors that are having to go through a lot of these beta products and experiences along the way you know, to, to process these kinds of issues. So, you know, basically, I guess my question for you is what is it that makes it so hard? Is it that you would have to almost create like multiple systems for every type of model out there that you've seen? Is it almost impossible to just build one big automated system that can handle the waterfall of any type of structure? I mean, like, where's the heart of this challenge here and what's the actual solution? The solution is technology will get there. Like the, the rate of the, the rate and like the ability for companies to create technology to solve problems today is obviously incredible. Um, it's very easy to, to build technology. So it will get there. It's just a, a matter of time. Um, to answer your question, what makes it so hard I think it's trying to rebuild the full abilities in like um, toolkit in Excel, but not rebuild Excel. Because sponsors and GPs would be like, I'm building all this custom stuff in, in Excel and I can add this little tweak in the operating agreement to make sure that this happens when this happens. And then it's like, okay, well, let's try and do this with new software. And it's like, wow, how do we just, how do we not recreate Excel? Because Excel is such an incredible tool and it's every, every software's biggest competitor is Excel. It's like, I'll just do it in this tool. Um, so I think we'll get there in a matter of time, but it's really just around how how configurable and unique you can make these operating agreements and waterfalls and stuff like that. So thankfully, I'd say 80, 90% of the use cases are fine. You know, it's a 8% pref and an 80-20 split, and then a 15 it goes to this. They're fine. I think that's been sold by software for many years. It's really around some of the stuff, which sounds like you're talking about, which can be quite unique and require a lot of configuration. One thing that is happening, and we do for all of our customers to help solve that, uh, Jeanette, though, is um, really support on the services. Like, if we can't take care of that use case of that waterfall, send us the spreadsheet. We'll go through it. We'll get it in the portal. For compliance reasons, we need you to click send. But there's a whole level of, like, services you can bring to customers to make sure they get the, the best experience. And it's, you know, it's us wrangling the spreadsheet. It's not Jeanette when she can be you know, out speaking with new investors and getting them on board, which would be far more useful um, use of your time. Yeah, very, very true. Now, you know, one of the things that I'd like to also dive into is security. Uh, that mm -hmm. has been one of the biggest concerns that I have heard uh, from investors is security. You know, it's one thing for me to know someone's banking information. And then, you know, if we are using a portal, potentially now you know it, and then, you know, maybe someone else in the third party company knows it. Now suddenly three people know, you know, someone's social security number or someone's banking information. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, before it was more of a closed circle. Um, and that's just 
internally. And then, you know, if you also think about, of course, obviously hackers and, you know, constant, everybody, any industry is constantly dealing with the threat, right, of cybersecurity and the, you know, all of the issues surrounding that. Can you explain, you know, kind of what your company's philosophy is on on handling those types of challenges and how investors can ultimately be protected from it? Because I think that's one of the things that investors are really concerned about. Yeah, um, security is always a threat. And I'd love to say that, you know, we or anyone is 100% secure, but the reality is there's always risk out there and you can get it to 99.999% secure, but you know, risks do happen. Um, and we've obviously never had a security leakage or anything like that. My co-founder and I actually came from B2B software. We're building um, people operations, compliance, payroll software. And this was deeply ingrained with us, which is when you were, we were onboarding employees rather than investors uh, in the software we were building. Um, but you were touching SSNs, touching addresses, touching you know, medical information, all this sort of stuff. I mean, there's lots of things you can do around making sure the companies that build software that support those things you know, how they hire people, how they train people, how they manage software, how they deploy software, those sorts of things. And it can be complicated, but there's a lot of technology that helps make this stuff easier. For example, like encryption. Mm-hmm. So like SSNs, if they come into our system, they automatically get encrypted and changed and separated in two different spots. So even if someone came into GP flow and hacked our systems, they wouldn't be able to go grab the SSNs. They need to understand the encryption of all the stuff behind the scenes. Um, but anyway, long, long way of saying like, it's really around how you produce software seamlessly um, and securely. Most companies are developing on Amazon Web Services, AWS, and they've got a lot of tooling that makes this stuff easier. Um, well, easier and less um, less risky of stuff being leaked or those sorts of things. And of course, there's always the basics like 2FA and secure passwords and stuff like that. Um, but often the biggest risk, the cybersecurity risk that companies face is internal. You know, it's someone... And someone in the investor relations team getting a phishing email and sending off someone's phone number to something or to someone. That's you know like 90% of how security breaches happen. It's like some sort of social engineering phishing attack that ends up leaking some keys or some information. So yeah, it's really software secure, but it's really around pre- preventing the phishing attacks and the social engineering that will get most of the issues avoided. Yeah, very good point and very valid. I think that uh, that we can all agree that AWS is is uh, well-funded and very advanced uh, technology and very secure, uh, but people, people can always be a, a bigger risk than anything else. Um, okay. So solid point. Yeah, very good point. Um, all right. So, you know, those are kind of just a handful of the things that I know that I've been a little bit frustrated with. I would like to encourage the listeners that are listening today, um, you know, share with us your opinion. How do you as an investor or as a sponsor feel about where we're at with, you know, investor portals and the software that are associated with that? Um, There's still a lot of room for growth and improvement, uh, but I will also say that we've come a long way, particularly in this industry, because at least we finally have it available, whereas we used to not, Um, you know, and and I think being able to have some of that modern convenience is also very important. Um, And, you know, frankly, almost an expectation of people nowadays, too. So, you know, guys, feel free to chime in and let us know what you think in your opinions. And maybe we'll have a second follow up episode, you know, based on that. Um, Now, before I lose you, Andrew, for the end of the show here, I did want to just touch on um, your other company because I think it's just very interesting to people Mm -hmm. and, you know, people are becoming increasingly curious about it. So with, um, let's see, it was Honeybricks. With Honeybricks, 
what we're talking about, if I understand correctly, is something kind of similar or akin to CrowdStreet or Fundrise, where you're really having to basically it's I'll call it tokenization for lack of a better term of assets, right? Or syndications and, and investments. And, you know, all of that I think is interesting to investors that are into, into that, but I think there's a lot of investors that don't understand it at all. So mm -hmm. just kind of on a broad level, can you explain to people, you know, kind of what was, what's the same and different about your, uh, company Honeybricks versus CrowdStreet or Fundrise, and can you even more so talk about tokenization and explain how that works so people can start to wrap their heads around it? For sure. So I put all those companies under this concept of crowdfunding, which is how do we pull people's capital and you know help them access you know higher quality pre-vetted projects. Fundrise and and CrowdStreet, they're sort of two different businesses that they both do crowdfunding. Fundrise is much more of a um, you know, a non-accredited play, you know, invest 100 bucks, 500 bucks, those sorts of things. And they have like a different structure, but it's not as, uh, you know, direct investing where, you know, companies like CrowdStreet and Honeybricks provide it, which is, it's this asset with this sponsor, you know, this deal, here's the docs, those sorts of things. I think it was a natural evolution, you know, from 20, 2012, 2013, when the Jobs Act happened and you can now raise money online through 5 or 6C. Uh, you know, majority of people that want to invest in real estate don't have access and they don't know great sponsors. Uh, that like you, Jeanette and, and Ellie and, and Elm, they, uh, they don't know how to evaluate these things. They don't know how these things work. And they can go to an online platform that pre-vets this stuff, you know, helps them have the seamless access to it. Um, and generally it works. Or it, it worked, you know, until until rates went, you know, parabolic in the last 18 months. I think there's been a big fallout in that industry, uh, which is, and there's been also been some edge cases about um, some misfortunes of different providers and those sorts of things. I think it will be back. I think it has a future because, you know, majority of people don't have access to private market syndications, and those sorts of things. But I think we'll be back in it in a different form around, you know, what it looked like, you know, 12 months ago, two years ago, three years ago, those sort of things. Um, as far as Honeybricks, what we focused on was doing a similar thing, really around bringing you know, pre-vetted great investment opportunities to new audiences that previously didn't have access to this stuff. Now, we focused... Um, on a different community and said, look, we can help these people get access to these high quality deals. And we followed the traditional playbook, looked at what are the best markets as far as demographics, who are the best sponsors to work with? How do we pre-vet deals? How do we get a piece of that deal? Those sorts of things. We probably didn't realize it at the time, but we were presuming that the funds of funds model, which is even through doing that and writing a substantial check, which we could then bring in different investors into, we could get better terms. We could give them you know, better secondary options, all this sort of stuff. So it did make sense. Um, in that someone investing 50K with a sponsor or 50K through a Honeybricks um, entity would get a better deal investing with Honeybricks because we'd buy, pull different investors together, negotiate better terms, a slightly different class or a slightly better, those sorts of things. Um, so it did work. The What really worked against us is just deal volume dried up. And we were looking at hundreds of deals a month. And over the course of the back end of 2022, when there was like the, um, what was it? There's a bunch of bunch of crisis, and there was an SVB crisis. Then you know, deal volumes have dried up, interest rates have moved a ton. A lot of stuff was falling over. Um, so we just didn't see the velocity and the predictability that investors really want. And I think that's what is hamstrung a lot of these bigger portals, including Honeybricks, which is unless you have repeatability, even sponsors have have that challenge. Maybe unless you have repeatability in the investor journey, or like his new deal every quarter, every month, it can be a little bit sporadic. It's stop and start. So I think the biggest thing we learned was. 
Um, building that investor experience and having clear expectations uh, is really important. We thought it was a much better way to have more impact doing that with GP Flow. So we basically took the same software that was doing the same thing, crowdfunding to real estate, and just made it more white label, more user-friendly, you know, more integrated with a different ecosystem and started working with sponsors. Very smart, uh, very innovative on your part, honestly, and uh, very interesting. I can appreciate exactly what you're saying. If you bring a marketplace to the market and there's no inventory in the marketplace because deal flow has slowed down so much, that's a, that's a very valid point. I had actually never thought about it um, from an yeah. online market standpoint. So that, yeah. that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. Very interesting. Um, Something to say as well that our investment committee was, it's much better to have an empty warehouse than a bad warehouse. Very so true. You'd be protecting things and would have investors reaching out, like when's the next deal coming? Like how's the pipeline? And we always had to manage expectations. We had to be honest with them, which is, look, the, the bid ask spread in commercial real estate is really large right now. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of attractive deals that we feel confident putting you know, your money in and our money into. Um, it might yeah. be back. So we still have the brand. We're still operating, I think, eight or 10 assets with you know great sponsors and great great deals across the market. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, GP Flow is our focus. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. I, I mean, I definitely think it will be back um, at some point. Because, you know, the industry is cyclical. So, you know, we know the good times are going to roll back in again. Um, but it, thank you. I mean, that's very insightful. I hadn't actually thought about it from a digital standpoint about, you know, the challenges that that deal flow especially could create for uh, people that have online marketplaces like that. So thanks. Yeah, very insightful. Um, I'm, I'm sure you guys found that interesting as well. All right. Well, Andrew, this has been very fun. Um, I got to air some of my frustrations and grievances, not all of them. Uh, we'll see what the comments uh, end up having in them. But nonetheless, I appreciate, you know, that you're part of trying to be a solution instead of, you know, refusing to be innovative, you know, you're being brave, you're recognizing there's challenges, but you're still trying to find ways to work over them, through them, under them, around them, um, you know, and you're moving forward, which I think is great. And awesome. so, you know, I commend you for the innovation and encourage you to keep at it. Right on, will do. <laughs> good, good. Well, before I let you go, let's make sure we do the lightning round questions. Are you ready? Let's do it. All right. So when you're not looking at real estate and, you know, code and making a bunch of cool software, what do you do for fun? So I'm the proud dad of, of two little girls. We have a two and a half year old uh, named Arlo and a, a 14 week old called Billy. Uh, but one thing we, we love is pool time. So we're lucky enough to take him to the local pool every Friday afternoon and watch them jump around and go down slides and stuff like that, which is incredible. Whenever I speak, speak to people that sort of pass that, that age of having young kids, they say it goes so quick. So we're trying to cherish every moment at the pool with them. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I, I encourage you to do that. My kids are older now and I miss those years a lot. Uh, they're the best. All right, yeah. very good. Now, what about as far as a book? Oh, no, wait, I almost went out of order. Whoa, first time in years. Uh, the second question <laughs> is, what is something interesting about you that most people don't know? At the moment, I'm really into family trees. I had my parents come and visit us um, a couple of months back and we had to had a week with them. And unfortunately, we all got COVID. So we're all just stuck in the house for a week. Uh -huh. But it was an incredible time of them actually being with us and in our environment. I'm one of four kids. So whenever we go back to Australia, they're always running off to tennis or picking someone up from soccer practice, that sort of stuff. So we were just hanging out in the, the house for a week uh, and got really into family trees. So we started like mapping this out and going back to, to 1850, I think we're at. So 
I've become a lot more aware of my my role as regards to others and the family trees, but very into that at the moment. Very cool. That sounds like a very fun project, especially around this time of year. Um, yeah. Great idea. All right. And then what about um, as far as a book that you, you know, either really made a big, big impact on you or is just something that you think is really important investors should read? Thoughts been said before, but I've got to say Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Every time I read that book, it just hits me in a different way. And my mom gave me that book when I was like 16 or so. And I was, I read it like, yeah, whatever, mom, I went back and playing video games. <laughs> and after when we got our first apartment, I became part of the strata committee of this like 18, 18 unit block and saw, you know, all the best sides and the worst sides of people living on top of each other, those sorts of things. And that book came back into my life. I reread it and I was like, ah, oh, this is what it means to work with others and work through challenges and those sorts of things. And it just hit me a different way. So I make it uh, a routine every few years, revisit that book. So I always just learn something new about interacting with others in the world. Very cool. Okay. All right. And then, you know, we always say that, um, yes, of course, this is about money because we're all trying to, you know, get a return on our investments and make smart investments, but it's not just about money. Uh, really, you know, for us and a lot of our investors, we're focused on trying to build extraordinary lives, live extraordinary lives. So what's your advice for someone that wants to build an extraordinary life? Something I've been thinking a lot about recently is, um, some advice from my mentors gave me a while back. They said like, something like Andy, life's not a speedboat, it's a sailboat. And being mm -hmm. the youngest of four kids, I've always looked up to my older siblings and wanted to catch up and be there and be like one of them. Uh, but him telling me that a couple of years ago and was reminiscing about it recently, it helped me realize that whenever you think about once I get to point A or once I get to point B, all my problems will be solved. And it's like, mm -mm, you just get a new, a new point B to run towards. So really trying to be present embrace the the fun ups and downs and yeah, cherish the, cherish the moments the day to day. Yeah. Very good advice. All right. All right. Now, last but not least, uh, Andrew, if people want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more about GP flow, what's the best way to, uh, to track you down? Yeah. Check, you can learn more about us and, and check out our software and our solutions at gpflow.com. So we work with a growing number of GPs and fund managers, you know, marketing deals, raising capital, delivering great investor experiences. Um, we're a new entrant in this space. So we like to say, you know, we're the number two got to work uh, twice as hard to work, you know, find great customers to work with. So uh, check us out there. You can request a demo, speak with someone from our team and uh, we'd love to get you set up and help you scale. All right. Very good. Well, thank you so much for taking time just to uh, to have some honest conversation with me, the good, the bad, the hard and the great, you know, so I appreciate your honesty and all of that. Um, and uh, and again, I just think it's really great what you're doing and commend you for your innovation and encourage you to keep on going. Uh, it's uh, it's exciting to see, you know, how far we've come and how much further we have to go. So for sure. we're just getting started. But thanks for having me, Jeanette. It was a great fun. Yeah, no problem at all. For those of you that tuned in today, thank you so much for your time and your attention. Uh, hope you, hopefully you put some comments in here and let us know what you think and feel uh, so we can follow up on that. And in the meantime, be bold, be strong, and keep moving forward. And we'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.